So what I'd like to speak about tonight, of course, is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And for those of you who have read the Satipatthana Sutra, you know that the fourth foundation of mindfulness is very, very long. It includes what we call the lists, L-I-S-T-S. In the teaching, there are many, many different lists of this and that. And so in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, it includes a lot of different lists. It includes the five hindrances and the seven factors of enlightenment and the five skandhas and the four foundations of mindfulness and the six sense doors and the sixth sense objects and that's about it but that's enough so (laughs) obviously I can't go through it in a detailed way in any which way Um, but I'd like to give you a certain perspective on it you know just talk about it in in a more general way a broader way as that which pertains to wisdom that which has everything to do with letting go and discovering inner freedom and inner happiness. We've been, actually, I've been talking about this line in the sutra, um, the body in the body, the feelings in the feelings, the um, mental states in the mental states. And what this has meant in relationship to the body is the body as it is, really experiencing the body as it is, not uh, how we describe or think about the body, not the appearance and ideas that we have about our bodies, but really to experience the body as the body. So not co-opted by various cultural ideas or conditioning, but to see the body as it is. And the same way with feeling, to see pleasant as pleasant, neutral as neutral, unpleasant as unpleasant. And the same with the mental states, to really see anger as anger, sadness as sadness, grief as grief, without adding to our experience, without subtracting from our experience really just to know the body, to know the feelings, to know the mental state that is occurring in the present moment. So when you get to the Dharma, it's the same thing, being aware of the Dharma in the Dharma. And what this means is being aware of the truth of things. I'll translate Dharma for the time being as being laws of experience or laws of nature, how things operate, how things are put together. Um, Really how things are. And so seeing how things are through investigation, through our own efforts, not according to conventional ideas about how things are, not according to what we've been told about how things are and what we should believe 
even though we're suspicious of it, what we should believe. Um, you know, just, a, just the belief of where happiness comes from, how we can get happy. We're told a lot of things about how we can get happy over and over again. We're told a lot of different things about where happiness comes from. And this foundation of mindfulness is really an invitation to find out for ourselves where does happiness really come from. So it's over and over again seeing if we can touch the truth of things, understand how things are for ourselves. One way of looking at this particular foundation of mindfulness is to be aware that one definition of wisdom is to know what to cultivate and what to let go of. What to actually cultivate in our life and what to let go of. Not from a particularly moralistic viewpoint, but really from the viewpoint that some states of mind lead to happiness and to peace, and other states of mind lead, you know, sometimes quite directly to misery and to unhappiness. So it's not a matter of judging. Michael spoke a lot about this last night, and we've spoken about it throughout the retreat. It's not a matter of judging what can be called unwholesome mind states. It's recognizing that unwholesome mind states are mind states that bring unhappiness and difficulty and suffering for ourselves and for others. When we judge, there it's coming out of conditioning. You know, it's not coming out of clear seeing. It's coming out of conditioning. Whereas when we see the wholesome and the unwholesome, we notice that the unwholesome is fragmented. You know, that, that could be what you could say the unwholesome is, is it's living in fragmentation. Whereas the wholesome is living within the whole. You know, it's being at one and at peace within ourselves and within our environment. It's not being out of step or out of harmony. And this is why we cultivate states of mind such as metta and compassion and joy and equanimity. This is why we do go about this work of cultivating these inner seeds and letting go of conditioning. And the letting go doesn't happen, this is where the judging comes in, it doesn't happen unless there is acceptance before the letting go. We can't go too fast. We can't kind of jump over acceptance into letting go, unfortunately, because we have to be close enough to be able to see clearly, to be able to investigate and let go. You know, in other words, if we're holding it away from us, if we're pushing it away, if we're labeling it in a certain way, then we won't be able to see it clearly enough to allow it to go on its own, to be able to actually let it go. And so we are 
allowing for mindfulness to see, and then out of that seeing for there to be the wisdom of letting go. Mindfulness being recognizing and noticing our experience just simply as it is, not judging, not anything at all, just simply knowing it as it is, and then seeing if we can bring it closer to us, seeing if we can accept it and allow for it's happening simply because it already is happening and we really don't have a choice about it. So, you know, ex- allowing, and it, allowing for its presence so that we can see it more clearly. And then investigating into it and letting it go. So, although this is one definition of wisdom, cultivating the wholesome and letting go of the unwholesome, At the same time, a deeper level of wisdom involves non-attachment to both. In other words, not defining ourselves through the mind states that arise. So in the cultivation, for instance, of loving-kindness, we are going to get in trouble if we come to a, a standpoint of, oh, you know, I had a good sitting where there was a lot of loving kindness. That must mean I'm a very loving and kind person. (laughs) This is a problem. Um, The same with compassion, the same with joy, the same with equanimity. Something's bound to happen that is going to um, show you, (laughs) either gently or rudely, that it's a definition. it's It's not who you are. It's a mind state arising that can be cultivated. And so we do cultivate it, but the non-attachment is necessary as well. Any self-definition brings problems. Any kind of definition at all is a fixation and a rigidity and doesn't allow for flexibility and fluidity, which is the very nature of life. There's the story in the Buddhist time about somebody who had been practicing for quite a long time and had developed a lot of wonderful qualities and at the same time realized that he wasn't totally free. And he heard that the Buddha was in town. Well, actually not in town, but in another town, but a town that was close by. And he decided to go travel to that town to see if he could receive teachings from someone whose reputation was that they were totally, completely free. So he went to see the Buddha, and the Buddha was busy doing something, teaching or talking to someone else. And so this man came up to the Buddha and said, you know, I really, really need the teaching. Um, quite, an, quite an older man, um, quite fragile, um, having a sense of maybe death coming soon. I really, really need the teaching. And the Buddha said, well, can't we talk about this a little later because I'm doing this other thing? And this man said, you know, I really need it now. I actually really need it now. You know, what you have to admire, you know, this, this um, relentless kind of yearning in the heart of, I, I have to have it now. So the Buddha, with his enormous compassion and, and wisdom, said, okay, well, I can't give you the long teaching, so I'm going to give you the short teaching. 
And the short teaching was this. And listen really carefully, because this guy actually got totally freed simply hearing this. <laughs> Anything is possible. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the thinking, there is just the thinking. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. That's all. He heard this teaching and actually immediately passed away. (laughs) But that's not the moral of the story. (laughs) The moral of the story is that he was totally freed before he passed away. So his mind was freed and his body returned to the earth. Things are as they are. That's what this teaching is saying, is that things are as they are. Conditions are impermanent, insubstantial. When we try to find lasting happiness through that which is impermanent, there will be suffering. We can want it, we can hope, we can dream, we can think that this time it'll be different with this particular phenomena, and it never is. But this we have to test out and find out for ourselves. You could say that our biggest condition is ourselves. And this is where the four foundations of mindfulness come in. You know, the big con- biggest condition is the body, are the feelings that we experience, are the mental states. You know, some of you have been really having a lot of difficulty with the heat, and you could blame it on the heat and say it's the heat, you know, it's the phenomena of heat. But it's actually how one relates to the heat that creates the suffering. It's not to negate that we want comfort and we're we're disappointed when there is discomfort, but it's also to see where freedom lies and not try to find it elsewhere. You know, of course, if we could have um, automatically air-conditioned the hall, we would have, because to do what one can is always wise. Certainly to do what one can and not put up with conditions unnecessarily. But all of us are subjected to conditions all the time. Having this vulnerable body, simply we are subjected to conditions. Having this mind, being in relationship with others, uh, there are conditions. So this is kind of what I want to talk about tonight. Maybe first I'll just tell you a little story about my niece Sophie that I spoke about at the beginning of the retreat. When she was um, maybe seven or eight, this was a few years ago, we were with her and her sister and brother, and she was having kind of a little temper tantrum about something or another. And she was in a real fit, and she's a very passionate, adorable child, and she really kind of had had fits about what she wanted and didn't want. So she was in one of these, you know, ordinary childlike little fits, temper tantrums. And um, I don't know why, I just went over to her and I took her by the shoulders, you know, and I kind of shook her just a teeny bit. And I said, can you be happy in the midst of conditions? (laughs) She was so shocked, she immediately like clicked back into herself. It was really something. 
I mean, you know, I have no idea. I'm, obviously, she couldn't have totally understood me or maybe didn't understand at all. The word condition, the word in the midst, I mean, midst is a, you know, it's kind of beyond a seven-year-old. But whatever happened, it was just that, you know, instant kind of click back into herself. And this is our question as well. Can we be happy in the midst of conditions? So looking at self-definition as a way in which we do suffer and can find freedom. And please, as I speak about this, about not-self or letting go of descriptions about oneself, this whole arena of what is called anatta or selflessness, see if you can hear it in a very easy and gentle way. Don't think too much about it. See if you can see into what's being said instead. Ajahn Chah said one's head will burst if you think about no self too much. (laughs) And what I've noticed is not that head bursts, but people fight. You know, there are arguments about whether there is self or no self or this or that. And this is not very conducive to peace. Or there's this sense that other people, after a million years of practice, get a glimpse of no self, but I've never had it, I'm never going to. Um, Or at the beginning of one's practice, oh, this is beyond me. Well, it's not. It's not beyond any of us. It's how things are. So all of us are capable of seeing into this in some way. I'm going to talk just a little bit about it, and then I'm going to um, give you some ways, some very practical, grounded ways, so that you can investigate this on your own, ways that perhaps you've seen yourself caught throughout this week and maybe can kind of allow yourself to be released. There's this particular model that I like, uh, that a teacher of mine uh, uses frequently, and I, I think it's very, very good when it gets to this this whole subject of anatta or not-self. And don't attach to the model, I have to say, because it really is just a model. There are other models that I'm sure are equally good. This one just I like, you know, just I connect to, but it's really just a model. So don't fixate around it or reify it or make it make it anything at all. But this model is the model of small self, big self, and no self. And what is meant by small self is how we usually think, how we usually go about the day and go go about our life thinking, where we're believing thought after thought after thought. We just, every thought that comes up, yes, uh uh-huh, this is who I am, yep, this is how things are, yep, you know, that kind of thing. And what this also has to do with is really um, developing a certain confidence within ourselves so that the thoughts of, I am a jerk, to some degree are replaced by, I can do this, whatever it might be. You know? Not, not you know, any sense of pushing away, I'm a jerk, just, just very, very gently noticing also that there are thoughts there as well of non-jerk mind. (laughs) Because when we have a certain um, real fixation around small self, we only hear jerk thoughts. 
So it's, it's practicing so that we can hear both jerk thoughts as well as non-jerk thoughts. I've never really described it like this before, but I'm sure you understand. So it's really being aware of our thoughts and noticing them clearly. In the practice of meditation, practice works with this model of small self because we move from a sense of scatteredness, like small self scatteredness, to small self um, put together, you know, kind of ordered, a sense of inner dignity, a sense of inner competence evolving because of practice, because of even just simply being with the breathing. Um, at some point, there's a sense of steadiness that we really can touch. There's some sense of, of inner calm that gives us confidence. This also has to do with um, character traits or virtues. You know, it's cultivating um, character traits that really are benign. It's really cultivating truthfulness and loving kindness and traits like this that are, that are very helpful in life. And it's a certain order in life. We come from being disordered to coming into a certain order. So it's developing ourselves in a healthy psychological way, which is really important, you know, quite important. It also has to do with being able to connect our ideals or our aspirations in life to our goals and to our actions, so that there's not this huge disconnect you know, between our thoughts and what we're moving towards. And in meditation, all of this has to do with the role of what is called samadhi or concentration. You know, as we practice more and more, we come together. You know, there is a sense of a healthy self. There is a sense of order in our life. It might manifest in a lot of very small ways. You know, one way might be just putting off making a phone call over and over and over again in our life, you know, never being able to make difficult phone calls. And then as things come together, making that phone call and then experiencing the relief of that, making another phone call, you know, um, writing letters that we might have to write, um, whatever it might be. I'm just coming up with examples. But, but being healthy, you know, in a, in a psychological way, this is one role or place of meditation. And then when it moves into what called, could be called um, big self, it's when there is a lot of samadhi or concentration or focus of mind, when there is a great deal of balance. And sometimes, you know, that sense of feeling very much at one with others or at one with the universe. Yeah. The only problem with this, and this is why you have to go into no self, is that there is a very, very strong tendency to think that you're the only one who's at one with the universe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very, very interesting. It's, it's definitely an experience, and it's a very wonderful experience, but oftentimes there is huge attachment to this experience of, this is who I now am. And of course, because it is, comes about because of certain conditions, it comes and it goes. It's certainly not something that we can count on or rely upon. It's not lasting happiness. This is what the Buddha found. Because in the Buddha's experience, he, he really experienced a great deal of concentration. And he saw that it wasn't enough. So, you know, we develop some degree 
of, of concentration. And then we see if we can also notice, have insight into no-self. No-self is a sense of transparency or a sense of um, not seeing that things don't have quite as much solidity or substance as they initially appear to have. You know, as they initially appear to have. There's this word in uh, Thai, which is kwam wang, which means an emptiness or a voidness that includes a sense of ease and peace and openness. We hear this word empty and we think, ah, oh, you know, I already know that really well in its depression. You know? This kind of emptiness is very, very different. This kind of emptiness is an emptiness that is full of ease, is full of peace. It's allowing ourselves to let go of ideas about who we are, whatever those ideas are, letting go of our, at times, strong belief in being an independently existing identity, not dependent on conditions. When we sense this in any way, we also let go of perceptions about being wise or kind or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's not something that registers. It's really just more of a living one's life being available, not quite as demanding that other people be a certain way to suit me, you know, my agendas, my life. Because, of course, all of us are going around with conflicting agendas, with conflicting demands about what would make us happy. When these conflict enough, there are arguments, there are fights, there are wars. So our practice obviously impacts the world quite significantly if we're allowing that charge to be taken out of ourselves. In this, there is really quite an open responsiveness to life and receptivity instead of such a sense of control and of demand. Less of a belief that I am this person doing this or doing that, going somewhere in time, um, I am a person who will be enlightened even. You know? just, just really letting go of, of this and allowing there to be more of a sense of knowing from moment to moment, a luminosity of knowing. Really quite a, a difference between connection and attachment. Now, mindfulness is connection. It really is being in contact and intimate with our experience from moment to moment. Whereas attachment is clinging. Attachment is trying to hold on so that something will either last or go away. Very, very, very different than connection, than intimacy. With attachment, we actually have everything at arm's length or at heart's length. And we want to bring it in. We want to be closer to it, be more, more aware and intimate with our experiences. Another way to talk about this subject is in terms of what is called relative and absolute reality, or could be called the conventional and the unconditioned. And these must be balanced. Yeah. We can't be really truly attached. We need to be connected but not attached to either one. You know, in a rel- from a relative point of view, um, if you call my name, I answer you. 
You know, I don't. You called Ryan. I don't say, oh, you know, who am I? I don't. <laughs> I mean, I might, but you know. <laughs> I don't call someone who's here Peter when they're Joe. You know, I call you Peter. Um, we're operating really as distinct individuals. This is, this is the relative reality of life, and it's within time. Um, you know, the bells go off. We come here at a certain time. That's really important. The world would not, um, we couldn't get anything done if we didn't have a name and we weren't aware of this cooperative thing that we do around time. <clears throat> However, if we identify and attach to conditions, if we identify and attach to something like time, we suffer as things change. We suffer when there is sickness, we suffer when conditions change. Um, we suffer basically all the time because of attachment and identification. The unconditioned view is knowing that there is that which is unnameable, we call it the unconditioned, but it's actually beyond name and form, that is beyond conditions as well. And that is that which is insubstantial, not solid, and not permanent. So we experience, at times, at times, a sense of fluidity and of openness. Within this, there is no identification, and so there is no suffering either. When we're attached to the relative, there's a problem because the elements in life mean too much to us. We don't have balance. We don't have equanimity. And we don't have calmness of mind when conditions change. When we're attached to the unconditioned, you could say that things mean too little, and we don't show up on time, or we hurt people's feelings and we don't even know it, or we're attached to, you can't really be attached to the unconditioned because there's nothing to be attached to, but we can very much be attached to a view or a notion about the unconditioned, and this obviously is a really big problem. The result of attachment to a view of the unconditioned is disconnection is indifference and certainly is a sense of separation. We kind of bring these, these levels together. Um, some years ago, I was sitting in, in a, our apartment in Cambridge, and I've never really been known as a really good um, housekeeper, cleaner-upper. I would rather sit and walk, basically. So. Um, I mean, I'm not proud of this fact, but I really don't have a great reputation in this arena. So, <laughs> particularly with one person in my life. <laughs> so I was sitting one afternoon, just, you know, having a great time, minding my own business, and being aware sound is happening, seeing is happening, you know, this is happening, that is happening, you know, no problem, you know, just, just things were fine. And at a certain point, I heard some noises in the kitchen, you know, just noises. And so, ah, hearing is happening. In the, <laughs> in the hearing, there is just the hearing, you know, no problem, huh? But then, you know, big insight. I realized it was most likely Michael, probably the only person in the house, um, dragging the trash out. And I also realized that we have, at that point in our life, just the nature of our trash, we had a lot of it and it was really a big job to do it. 
So I realized that I had this, you know, choice to make of shall I just be with, you know, hearing as hearing, <laughs> or shall I help Michael with the trash? Now I realized that, you know, always practices going against one's inclination. So thank goodness I had the insight, you know, get up, help Michael with the trash. But it was that interesting thing around the relative and the unconditioned, you know, knowing when hearing is hearing and this is how things are, and knowing when you have to take out the trash. So bringing the relative and the unconditioned together. And then, of course, while you're taking out the trash, can you just take out the trash? Or asking me, you know, can I just take out the trash? Can I be aware that feeling is happening, touching is happening? You know, same thing as sitting, not, not really different, other than the distinctions one makes in the mind. So just a few ways to explore this for yourself, maybe tonight, maybe throughout the day tomorrow. And I'm just going to mention a couple of ways. Don't um, think that you have to get this and then apply it and make it into a whole big thing. Just see if some of it can permeate and make sense to you, and then you can apply it in the way that it works best for you. Being very aware of the difference between living life and describing life. Yeah. Being very aware of the moments when we're connected to things as they are and the moments we're describing, commenting, getting caught up in that which is really just a description. So the difference is between having an experience versus I am having an experience. Yeah. This is the difference. And so is it possible to allow experiences to simply be experiences, mental states to simply be mental states, thoughts to simply be thoughts, feelings to be feelings, bodies to be bodies, sensations to be sensations, without the need to comment. If a commenting arises, and that's a thought, and that's not a problem, but adding on to it in any which way, getting absorbed in and thinking that we have to describe it, which sometimes we do because it makes us feel safer, is really a good thing to look at in this area. It's really the difference between the characteristics of the, exist of the experience itself and the thought about the experience. Seeing if we can be aware of the characteristics of the experience itself versus our thoughts about that characteristic. And ways you can look at this throughout the day are really just, you know, I am a good meditator, I am a bad meditator, I am a good yogi because I stayed up an hour tonight, you know, I am a bad meditator because I had to go to bed, you know, which is really, really funny because, you know, if there was really wisdom there, you would really just be noticing, ah, there is fatigue, so of course going to bed is the wise thing to do. Ah, you know, there is energy, so of course, why should I go to bed based on a concept? You know? So it's, it's really just a view and an opinion that we have that we're attached to. I am happy, I am sad, I am irritated, I am peaceful. Instead of peacefulness is occurring right now, sadness is occurring, this experience is happening, irritation is happening, without that need to comment on it and to add the sense of self to add the eye to it. In paying attention to the actuality of how things are from moment to moment, we naturally leave behind the contraction of I. 
know? And we find, when we find that contraction is occurring, we can very, very gently expand and open up and be with an experience exactly as it is. Now, and that's kind of the, the transformation between suffering and non-suffering, is noticing that contraction and then expanding a bit, noticing with mindfulness what exactly is happening, laying aside the commenter, you know, laying aside the, um, the I, the I am having instead of this experience is occurring. Sometimes one can see this very clearly with doubt and with despair. You know, because those states of mind seem so believable. They seem so much mine, I and mine. When we can see despair, when we can see doubt occurring, to not add to it, you know, to really simply see it as a state of mind, doubt is arising, doubt is occurring, despair is happening, instead of adding to it in any way with the I am. It's amazing how quickly it changes and passes away when we don't fix the eye on top of it. Satipanya, sati means mindfulness and panya means wisdom. What this is, is freedom from I am. It's really just experiencing from moment to moment whatever there is to experience. And there's a sense of balance of simply being inwardly normal and natural. It's not like it's, you know, so enormously pizzazzy or exciting or, or this or that. It's just what the heart yearns for. You know? Only what the heart yearns for. But not our ideas about what we're yearning for. You know, just a sense of inwardly normal, inwardly natural, naturally relaxed. With satipanya, we can see that experiences are conditioned. We can see our instinct of clinging to the self, to the sense of I, to the sense of self, and we can see that experiences arise and pass away and are out of our control, which kind of erodes the concept of there being a fixed and rigid, unchanging self, because we see that the I changes with conditions. You know, we see instead of, I am irritated, that irritation is happening. So we can notice the tendency, the instinct to claim it as who we are or as how things are. When I say as how things are, what I mean is that sometimes when we have a mind state, we don't only just say it's how I am. We say it's how everybody is, you know, or we say it's how the world is. We see the world oftentimes through our own self-definition. And so letting go of this is very, very helpful. Being aware of fixing others in boxes, which is really interesting to notice on retreat. You know, this, this um, perception of you are like this, you are like that. Certainly, I am like this, I am like that. One can see this happening a lot of the time, putting oneself in a box. You know, I'm this kind of person, I am that kind of a person. But what is very, very interesting as well is to see how often and how habitual it is to put others in boxes. Because when we make other, we make self. You know? I mean, you can't be free from self if you're making other. It doesn't make any sense. So um, to be aware of 
the tendency to label others as this or as that. It's, it's a sense of assuming and presuming that our perceptions are accurate and complete. You know, sometimes at this point in the retreat, you can sort of, if you've been looking around at all, or just even looking at, you know, people's feet even sometimes, you can get a, a kind of a, you divide the retreat up. Oh, you know, these people are my friends, these people are my enemies. <laughs> you know? This person I really want to talk to after the retreat, this person, maybe they'll leave before the retreat ends, so <laughs> I won't have to talk to them, you know? This person I'm afraid of, this person... And then, of course, of course, it's so different. And if this is your first retreat, it'll be a shock. When other, you know, when we've been practicing for a while, we, we don't believe our perceptions about people on retreats quite as much. Um, but certainly, if it's, first, if, you, if it's your first retreat, one comes after the retreat and, you know, we actually are normal and talk and look each other in the eyes and things like that. And then so different than what our perceptions were. You know, just so radically different. Um, I'm sure all of you old students out there are very familiar with this whole thing of, um, of a VR, which um, is known of as a, a Vipassana romance or a Vipassana revenge, you know, which, <laughs> which means kind of nourishing um, perceptions, you know, nourishing thoughts of, of being attracted to someone or being averse to someone, and then having it all built up, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really love this person, or I'm going to really hate this person. And then we meet the person, and sometimes it's just in opposition. It's somebody that we thought we, would, we felt really close to and we were really like-minded. We meet and just, I don't know, something's really off, or the voice is funny, or, you know, we just thought the voice would be different than the body, or, you know, something. Something is just different, doesn't, doesn't really quite connect with us the way we thought it would. They're really not our bosom buddies. Yeah? And then the same, you know, somebody that we've really built up a case around. They're insensitive. They always do this. They always do that. You know, they, they, they always get in line before me and, um, you know, um, jump all over the place. And they're talking and they shouldn't talk. And, you know, this kind of thing, really building up a case about them. And then we meet them and there's something so different. There's a sweetness and there's a, something endearing. And we think, oh, you know, there's another perception that has passed away. So we can, we can be aware of this whole arena. It's very, it's very handy and helpful to do this in the silence, because in the silence we can see and have more chance of not completely believing in our perceptions. You know, we can notice a little bit more deeply, be aware of the perception, not judge it, not see it as a problem, and at the same time not believe in it. You know, not justify it, not see it as obviously, clearly how things are. Everybody else would see it in the same way. You know, not so, not so. Um, also, as well, being aware of the no-self nature of reactions, being aware as reactions arise, that reactions are simply arising, that there's no little being inside that is deciding on how to react. It's really conditions coming together. And we're responding to reactions with awareness. 
As Michael said last night, mindfulness is a way to decondition the mind. Mindfulness wears the ruts in the mind away. And it's almost like we begin practice with deep ruts because of our past. And past could be, you know, a long, long, long time if you also have any sense of other lifetimes. Big ruts, you know, really big ruts. And so mindfulness gradually kind of filling in those ruts or paving them over, you know, kind of smoothing out the brain, smoothing out one's life, deconditioning these reactions. It's true that we can create the conditions for the arising of certain states, but we can never be absolutely certain of the result. So, you know, one might come to a metta practice really happy and excited, oh, we're going to get to do metta. And, you know, you might find yourself wanting to throw tomatoes or eggs at me because it can be quite irritating when you don't feel any metta to have someone say, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering. It's very irritating if you feel the opposite. And one might. You you can create the conditions, but you can't ever be completely certain of the results. Creating the conditions is really important. Cultivating happiness states of mind is really important. But non-attachment is always necessary. Being aware, I think I I have a a bunch more, but I'll I'll just take one more on. Um, hmm, I like them both. Um, well, maybe I'll talk quick and do them both. <laughs> um, one, one is, um, is conceit, being aware of the comparing mind. You know, because this is really an interesting way to see how we make self. Seeing others as worse than oneself, better than oneself, and then kind of the kicker is equal to oneself. You know, and there's arrogance and conceit in seeing somebody as equal to oneself, because who says? You know, who, who's making that decision? Maybe the person you're feeling that about is thinking that you're better than or worse than. You know, so even equal to is a sense of I am. So being aware of conceit, being aware, it's just called conceit, but it means comparing mind, assessing, evaluating, We may see this happening quite a bit of the time once we start to look. And it's good news, actually, if you see it happening a lot of the time, because it's very conditioned. And so you're probably catching more moments of contraction if you are seeing this comparing mind. See if you can accept it without judging it, because it is indeed a habit. And the last one to speak about is the tendency that we have to work on ourselves as if we were a project that needed to be fixed. This is very, very strong. It's very strong in spiritual communities. It's very strong in New Age communities. It's very strong um, with a certain subset of the culture, you know, is this idea that there's something wrong with us and um, making ourselves into a project, you know, being projects for the rest of our lives that need to be fixed. Uh, this, is not, um, this is not the practice. 
This is not any sense of ease or well-being. It's always a sense of having to improve ourselves in some way, which is very, very different than cultivating happiness, knowing inner peace, knowing inner freedom. What it, how it shows up is thoughts about how I am, how I should be, how I will be if, with this sense of a solid, enduring view of who we are, of how we will be. Whereas wisdom is responding to the needs and the experiences in life with satipanya, with mindfulness and with wisdom. Letting go of having to be someone, letting go of having to change anything. Mindfulness can be trusted. Mindfulness sets things right. Not even, of course, trying to be nobody, because that is a problem as well. When we try to be nobody, when we try to be special, when we try to be someone, everything is arising and ceasing. If we get caught, or, you know, when we get caught in this particular kind of conditioning, we also, of course, see others as objects that need to be fixed. Now, we don't just mind our own business. Usually, the tendency is to see that everyone else needs to be fixed as well. And this, of course, is going to take the rest of your life and is never going to be possible. We want to aim for what is possible, which is happiness and freedom. In practicing in this way, in very gently seeing through the eyes of kindness and of wisdom, seeing the contraction, the habit of self, we do open to an awe in life that is free of self, knowing for ourselves that all personally centered thoughts and emotions are empty. Not a problem that they arise, not a problem in any which way, out of our control, but are inherently empty. If not seen as empty, thoughts and emotions do feel harmful, and if not harmful, at least limiting. If we do see clearly, we can let go and naturally sense this awe in life. This opens up when we're not quite as caught up in ourselves, in our self-definitions, opening to our life more and more without any sense of separation, sensing ourselves as part of nature, as nature itself, as no different, as not other than. We can begin to see this error that we have of this kind of sense of exclusive identification with the thoughts and the, the feelings that are happening, the mind and the body, the three other foundations of mindfulness, of body, of feelings, of states of mind. And this illusion of separate self just very gently, very gently begins to dissolve. As this happens, wisdom and insight really grow in the very cells of our bones. Well, this is very much a practice that affects our, our very being, our cells, our bones. So we really understand the Dharma deeply in our bones. 
and we do discover inner happiness. So just to end with something by Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no real importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Don't become attached to it. Don't identify with it and pass judgment upon it. Let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything, and everything vanishes and reappears magically without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a rainbow which you pursue without ever catching. Although it does not exist, it has always been there and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like rainbows in the sky, wanting to grasp the ungraspable. You exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great elephant who is already quietly at home. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. This natural ease and freedom and spaciousness is the ease that comes about in seeing through our ideas about ourselves. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in peace and in freedom. Can we take just a short moment together? <laughs> 